This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Muller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Daniel Hummel is the Director for University Engagement at Upper House, a Christian ministry and study center located at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Dr. Hummel received his PhD in history from the University of Wisconsin, and he was awarded the History and Public Policy Postdoctoral Fellowship at Harvard University's Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation. In addition to his work with Upper House, Dr. Hummel serves as a research fellow and lecturer in the history department at the University of Wisconsin there at Madison. He's written numerous peer-reviewed articles. He's written for outlets like The Washington Post, First Things, and Christianity Today. He's the author of two books. It's his most recent book, The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism, that is the topic of our conversation today. Daniel Hummel, welcome to Thinking in Public. It's a pleasure to be with you. You know, I think most people uh, who know about evangelical Christianity in the United States, and, uh, and for that matter, the vast majority of evangelicals, uh, are at least uh, familiar with dispensationalism, whether they have a name for it or not. And I think they would assume that it had always been part of the uh, evangelical landscape. You really do a masterful job in this book, The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism, How the Evangelical Battle Over the End Times Shaped a Nation. But you really have to tell a story that uh, I think most evangelicals don't really know. Yeah, and it, it's a story that uh, is at least uh, 200 years old, goes all the way back, doesn't even start uh, in the United States. Uh, but it's one that I think, as you mentioned, I think most people, most even Americans that aren't part of the evangelical world, know something about uh, the teaching of a rapture, at least in the basic form, that there's a, um, a, a teaching that suddenly all the true believers will be uh, disappeared into heaven, translated into heaven. Um, and then this will kick off a, an end time scenario that will lead to all types of wars and the rise of an antichrist and everything else. Um, you know, that, that's a that's a very popularized version of this history uh, of, of dispensationalism, of this theology. But it's it's so much more than that. And as someone who grew up in the world of dispensationalism, uh, I knew there was a lot more to it. So uh, in the book, I, I start all the way back in the 1830s with a um, Anglo-Irish cleric uh, named John Nelson Darby. And then we we take it from there. As an historical theologian, um, you say all the way back in 200 years. Uh, to an historical theologian, that's not very far back. And, and that actually is, I think, the most surprising part of the story, is that uh, there, there's virtually nothing like dispensational Christianity in the United States in any previous era. You've got a lot of eschatological expectation. You've got a lot of eschatological speculation, but nothing like this is a system. That's right. And there are definitely, I think, in a, in a more uh, a less fine grained version of the story, uh, people would point to thing to, to groups like the Millerites in the 1840s as uh, as, a, as a predecessor. And I talk about them as well. But um, really what Henry Miller was doing in or sorry, William Miller was doing in that uh, in, in his prediction of the end times was a version of sort of a Chileism or a millenarianism. Uh, but it, it didn't have the, the underpinnings of dispensationalism. And if you if you talk to dispensationalists, uh, they will tell you that um, th there's a much older history to dispensationalism. And I try to be uh, sympathetic, at least in some of the parts of what they're trying to say there. But as, as far as I see it, and I think I'm not alone among historians, Darby in the 1830s and 1840s is really the figure who brings together a number of teachings to create the 
sort of embryonic form of a system of theology that we end up calling dispensationalism. Yeah, the theologian in me wants to stipulate up front that there are systems and there are systems. And uh, most systems are rather fundamental and simple. Uh, you, you could take covenant theology as an example. Uh, there, there's a very simple and direct apprehension of covenant theology, old covenant, new covenant, continuity, discontinuity. When you talk about dispensationalism, you're talking about a system that that actually kind of rivals medieval, uh, you know, uh, Thomistic thought in, in its complexity. And and what's amazing to me is that there were so many conservative Christians who gave themselves to becoming more or less uh, self-taught and conference-taught experts in this system. That's right, and and created a whole sort of uh, Bible Institute network of schools to at least in part teach this system as well. That that complexity, that intricate sort of the intricate nature of the system, uh, that's one part of the the whole story. I think does trace back to someone like Darby, who was a a very uh, intellectual person, someone who wrote millions and millions of words, um, someone who wrote hundreds of books on all parts of theology. Uh, we know him, uh, if, if you don't know him for dispensationalism, he is the or the originator of the Plymouth Brethren movement and then the exclusive Brethren sect within that. And so he was just a prodigious person who was very complicated in his thinking. And so as people tried to popularize his teachings and then adopt them in later generations, that that intricate complexity uh, uh, traveled along with them. So there has to be kind of an Ur story here. There's, there's got to be an origin. And, and you've got the man in uh, John Nelson Darby. But how does he come to this? In other words, this is a this is not a natural reading of scripture. That was one of the first responses of people say in the reformed world, you know, to hearing dispensationalism like you know, no one would read the Bible uh and and just come to that. Instead, it kind of fits that 19th century idea that there's this overarching structure that's invisible till you see it, then you see it, you can't not see it. How did that right. happen? Yeah, and and uh, you know, Darby would insist he is doing a, a I guess a, a plain reading of scripture or a straight reading of scripture, and of course, dispensationalists would as well. But um, you know, he came to uh, his beliefs. He started as an Anglican priest, and and there's not nothing really remarkable in his first few years. This is in the 1820s. He develops a very strong critique of the Anglican Church, and particularly the Church of Ireland, that in, in in the most basic form, that the Church has been totally compromised by the effort uh, to uh, extend British imperial influence uh, across the globe. And so he right. sees the Church as just entirely entwined in worldly interests. And so he develops a very strong sense that the Church's purpose in the world is entirely heavenly or otherworldly. And he brings uh, what some theologians, and I go along with them, call a, essentially a dualism to uh, the text, to the Bible, and ends up reading all the Bible, and particularly the prophetic portions, as either relating to heaven or earth. Uh, and, and there are two peoples of God that relate to heaven and earth. The heavenly people are the church, and the earthly people is the nation of Israel. And once you start putting that lens over the Bible, you start developing uh, inconsistencies that you have to smooth out, and you start developing distinctive teachings about the fulfillment of prophecy, hidden weeks and parentheses and, and all other types of things to, to smooth it out. 
Uh, and later theologians come along and try to bring some order to that. But really, um, Darby's original interest, which might surprise people who think of just the end time scenario as the as the totality of dispensationalism, was really, you could say, an ecclesiological concern about the church and the sort of fallen nature, the apostate nature of the church. And uh, that anyway, that drives his, his reading of the Bible. But uh, once you apply that dualism across the entire Bible, um, you have a lot of things you have to account for that develop into this system. Yeah, the Plymouth Brethren angle of this is certainly the manifestation of that kind of, uh, again, primitivist impulse uh, in ecclesiology. And, and you see that on both sides of the Atlantic, the, uh, the Campbellite, uh, you know, restorationist movement, uh, the Churches of Christ. Again, simplicity uh, and, and the, the restoration of a lost uh, simplicity. Uh, again, what makes it different is that there's no way that uh, dispensationalism uh, can be defined as simple. And, and right. so that, that, that's the, uh, the irony here, the anomaly in my mind, because it, I can understand the, the purity effort and appreciate it and uh, the restorationist uh, concern. But how you get from that to the complexity of dispensationalism, still, it's, it's, it's still a leap in my mind. Yeah, and it, it, that that's part of what I, I tried to fill in the gaps is is there's a there's a more surface level reading of this history that really draws a straight line from John Nelson Darby to people like Cyrus Schofield and then um, Dallas Seminary or something like that, and um, that's just not how how it developed. Um, Darby was a pretty marginal figure in particularly in American uh, Christianity, but even in British Christianity. Uh, he does travel around the United States for a number of years. He spends seven years in the United States in the 1860s and 70s. But really what is the key to his growing influence or the, his ideas growing influence in the U.S. is a set of other brethren who are much better at popularizing his teachings. And there's uh, there's a number of them. His, his main editor was a guy named William Kelly, who was very uh, popular among American Christians. Um, and there's a there's another sort of more devotional writer named C.H. McIntosh, who was a very prominent brethren, who people like Dwight Moody cited as very influential in their thinking. And so Darby's ideas sort of trickle in in the 1860s and 1870s in the United States. And no one in the U.S. takes it full, uh, swallows the whole thing full. And this is to Darby's great uh, torture that that no Americans really want to adopt his whole system. Particularly, these Americans who are adopting his system are all pastors, more or less, and the brethren don't believe in a clergy class. And so if Darby had his way, people would leave their denominations and join the brethren and reject the idea of a clergy. Um, that doesn't happen. But there are key leaders in the United States who do adopt both the ecclesiology part for particular reasons having to do with the 1860s and 70s and the eschatology part, because it seems to be making sense of a lot of what's happening in the world as well. And so uh, Darby doesn't get his way. I think it's actually a, a, a sort of disservice to both Darby and the people that follow him to draw that straight line. Yeah, and that uh, that jagged line also reminds me at several points reading your book, which by the way is is it has a a very well sustained narrative. It's, it's, it 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 it, uh, it it's well done in terms of telling the story. At several points, you just have to think this thing could have died out, yeah. and no two people will be talking about it in two thousand twenty three. But uh, at several points, it uh, it took a very different trajectory. 
Yes, that's one of the most interesting parts of the story to me is that there's no um, inevitability about the development of dispensationalism, either as a system of theology or what we see today is as sort of a popular level version for a lot of the the more consumer oriented uh, Christian culture that that sort of assumes a dispensationalist um, background. It's actually a pretty complex theology to try to popularize it all. So that that is one of the interesting things. And, and there is a point later on in the 19th century when there is a critical mass of um, of theologians, of pastors, of revivalists that are promoting particularly the eschatological and ecclesiological parts of Darby's teachings. Um, but even then, they're making major changes to the underlying assumptions that Darby brought to the text. They have a totally different context within which they're working. They're not brethren. They're not in the British Isles. Um, and so they have their own uh, their own ways they're dealing with this. And even there, you could imagine uh, uh, some other type of theology really uh, moving in or, or having right. a, a, a a more influential impact, but that's part of the fun of telling these stories is, is understanding exactly how things unfolded to get where we are yeah. today. I, I uh, if I may, will stipulate a couple of things here. Number one, um, classical dispensationalists are theologically conservative. Uh, classical dispensationalists are biblicists in the, and I, I mean that not as a criticism, they're deeply committed to the scripture and to what they see as the right reading of scripture. And, uh, and, and they are ardent in terms uh, of their uh, commitment as Bible students. Uh, they, they, they're very serious students of the Bible. And, and so at several points in my life, uh, wonderful classical dispensationalists have had a, a big spiritual influence on my life, and I'm, I'm very thankful for that. But my own theological background is very different, and I'm not a dispensationalist. I am a premillennialist, by the way. But, so uh, am I, by the way. So. Of, uh, as a classic premillennialist, yeah. I, I would say. But... Uh, you know, I, I think it's also important to do a little bit of sociology here uh, and, and just say that on both sides of the Atlantic, in, in, uh, in Great Britain, you've got this enormous social change brought by the Industrial Revolution. You've got urbanization, you have the opportunity. I mean, you've got Charles Spurgeon uh, with the, uh, you know, the, 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 the influx of so many workers uh, there in, in a city like London or, uh, or Manchester or Edinburgh. And and uh, you had the also the the rise of nonconformity in a different social role, that is uh, the churches outside the established church, the Church of England, and so radical experimentation is taking place in ways that I, I think most Americans don't know from British history. There's a there's a lot more sturm and drang going on there than uh, that than Americans might think. Meanwhile, on this side of, of the Atlantic, you've had the entire you know situation of the Second Great Awakening. And then the development of the burned over district in New York, again, all this religious fervor that, uh, that you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a, a great appreciator of the First Great Awakening, great concerns about the Second Great Awakening. But one thing, its effects, it set loose all these sects and cults, uh, you, know, uh, it, you know, well, so many of them from the American Northeast. And everybody had a system, whether it was Mary Baker Eddy, uh, you know, or Joseph Smith. Everybody had a system. And it seems to me that sociologically, the United States at that moment was kind of ready for an argument that, that was pretty classically Christian and biblicist to say, okay, you know, those guys are nuts. Here's the system. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And and of course, even even closer to the time period we're talking about here, the businessman's revival in, in the late yeah. 1850s was another just moment. And this was a particularly uh, promising moment for brethren to spread their uh, spread their uh, their message. But uh, yeah, the 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 late 19th century is a really interesting time to look at the development of theology 
And there is there seems to be some space. There's a lot of development on the sort of theological side. Um, but there's also a lot of uh, crises out there, particularly if you're a Bible-believing conservative Protestant. There's right. the rise of Darwinism, of course. There's industrialization happening on a mass scale. Catholicism new... in America cities. That's right. That's right. Um, and there's uh, um, there's new developments in uh, in Protestantism as well that are ripping apart or, or at least leading to a, a major critique of uh, sort of assumed biblical authority. And so there is definitely appetite for people like Darby or like the Brethren to come along and, and later on their American uh, champions to create a seemingly scientific or modern way of approaching the Bible, one that um, uses sort of... Uh, uh, language of uh, linear time and dividing things up very cleanly to show that the Bible can sort of uh, be as modern as any of these other things that are trying to critique the Bible. And one way to even just think about this is the famous prophecy charts that uh, Clarence Larkin in particular popularized um, all in the early 20th century. And if you if you zoom back, and you don't look at the details, they look like uh, instruments in a lab or something like that. They're drawn in a way uh, that really sort of tries to show the modernity or the scientific value of the dispensationalist system. And it's no accident that people like Larkin were engineers by training. Darby was a lawyer. And you can see there's sort of a professional appeal yeah. also to the systematization yeah. that's happening in the late I, I was going to mention the uh, Larkin charts, uh, which uh, I, I, I at least was exposed to as a teenager. And it was only far later as an historian that I came to understand that the British Empire was full of similar charts. Uh, including, uh, the, you know, putting Britain's imperial history in the flow of Western civilization with the Roman Empire and the medieval ages, in other words. And so school children, uh, perhaps on both sides of the Atlantic, but certainly in Great Britain, they, they were quite accustomed to seeing these uh, timelines, which were trying to say, here's the great story. And, and Larkin goes back and, of course, goes back to creation as the, the beginning of the story. I want to ask you to do something as a service to this conversation. And that is, and uh, I, I strategically waited until now, but I think now's the right point. You've written a book, The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism. Maybe it's an opportune moment to ask you to define what dispensationalism is. Yeah, um, that's always the the million dollar question. Uh, by the way, just I'll say on on the charts, the, those charts which to many outsiders look very complicated are actually meant to simplify things. The pictorial representation is meant to simplify. So is the periodic remember, table of elements. That's right. And I remember there, there was one a brethren who, who uh, you know, was doing these charts and he had a very simple chart, but it required a 200 page uh, accompanied annotation to go. understand the chart. So uh, not not so simple, I guess. But um, a definition of dispensationalism, uh, I give in the introduction to the book, uh, seven different uh, sort of aspects of the system of dispensationalism. I think I'll reduce those. Again, again tr trying to be simple, you have seven yeah. definitions. That's right. That's right. <laughs> okay. um, but uh, we mentioned it a, a bit. So dispensationalism is uh, the term itself comes from the dispensations that dispensations divide all of uh, history into all of time into. And these dispensations map somewhat onto different covenantal agreements God makes with um, with the patriarchs and, and others. Um, but the, I think the key is that uh, for someone like Darby, who believed in seven dispensations, which is the most uh, common number, uh, we currently live in the sixth dispensation or the, the dispensation of grace or sometimes called the church age, which is a pretty unique dispensation. Among the, uh, among the seven dispensations, the other six are God really working through the people of Israel to redeem the world, to make right what was put wrong. 
Um, but in the church age, uh, he is working with the church, with the 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 um, uh, the, myste- the mystery of the of the Old Testament, and so uh, a lot of the rules that um, sort of govern God's relationship with humanity during those other ages have a have a slightly different play in in the church age. But that's one big part of of the system is that there are these distinct dispensations that give you a sense of how God deals with humanity in each dispensation. Then there is the eschatology, which is sort of what's going to happen between the sixth and seventh dispensation. The seventh one would be the millennial kingdom. And that is where a lot of focus has been on. A lot of thousands of books have been written about sort of what's going to unfold at the end of this age. And that's where the teaching of an imminent rapture comes in. And this is God taking away the church, removing the church from the earth to resume his dealings with humanity through Israel. And uh, there's a seven age or seven year tribulation, which uh, gets uh, a lot of focus. Um, and 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 then there's the millennial kingdom, uh, and then there's the final judgment at the end. So there's the eschatology as well. Um, and then there's finally uh, this will be the third one I'll, I'll say is is a, is a hermeneutic that has changed over time. So when Darby was developing his his ideas, Darby was not what we'd call a literalist, which often gets associated with dispensationalism today right. as a sort of plain reading or a historical grammatical reading of the text. Darby was anything but. He was a very uh, opaque, uh, dizzying reader. He saw typologies on almost every page of the Bible and and dozens of them sometimes. Um, and, and actually Schofield did as well. There's hundreds of footnotes in Schofield's Bible around, around typologies. Well, typologies get you in all types of, uh, interesting situations as you're reading. Um, so later dispensationalists really try to tie their system to a, a plain or literal reading of the Bible. And, um, and this is, this, uh, aligns with a very high view of the Bible and, and a view of the inerrancy of the Bible. And so those things often go together for dispensationalists, but they become one of the key sort of defenders of a literal reading of the text and particularly the prophetic, uh, uh, books of the Bible and the apocalyptic, uh, book of revelation. Um, and, and they become sort of the, 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 uh, the agenda setters in some ways, at least for the broader church on reading those, uh, books, uh, literally. So those are some yeah. aspects of the system. Um, there are others as well, including, uh, a, a, a part of their soteriology or their view of what it means to be saved that get them into a number of controversies as well, particularly with more reformed theologians over the decades. Yes. And, uh, that's kind of where I enter the story personally as a teenager and, uh, and by by the way, uh, dispensationalism was a part of the evangelical ethos, but uh, it was also an, a, a pretty, you know, fervent evangelical controversy. And so I didn't understand these terms when I was a young teenager, but I, I knew the movies, uh, and uh, I, I I knew how to recognize some of the preaching. I, I knew that people carried the Schofield Reference Bible. I knew there were people who didn't like the new Schofield Reference Bible because it had gone liberal. Uh, you know, all, all these things going on. But it was very interesting that uh, at that time, as a teenager, uh, not far from my home in, in South Florida, was a place called Bible Town. It was a conference center, and it was really a part of the dispensational movement. And Bible conference preachers would be there, Warren Wearsby and, you know, George Sweeting and any number of other people. And I went up there and at the same time also, you know, got to know, uh, exposed to a pastor who was a recent Dallas Seminary grad, complete with the uh, overhead projector. And, and I was amazed, uh, you know, Dr. Hummel, I have to tell you, I, I, I was amazed at, at what I saw as an, am, an amazing ability to tell people how to read the Scripture. Um, there was an enormous hunger for that. And uh, I can just tell you, I, I, was, I was immediately intrigued. Now, at the same time, I was pretty well saturated in Reformed theology, 
uh, and remain there. But nonetheless, I, I say this with great respect. I, I thought uh, that, that young pastor who, you know, it must have been like, two, you know, 26, 27 years old. I thought he loves the scripture. He loves teaching the scripture. And boy, is he good with that overhead projector. I, 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 and, and, and I mean, he, he's just taking the text with such seriousness and people there with their Bibles open. It was a very impressive thing. Yeah. And I, I grew up in the nineties and I actually, there, there were still overhead projectors in the nineties. So I, I remember uh, some similar presentations. Um, I think one of the things to, to just think about in the 20th century is that for at least the first uh, 60 years, so up to 1960, and you could even go past that dispensationalists really were um, about building a movement about building an entire intellectual theological complex uh, ecosystem that would support uh, not just the defense of their views, but the perpetuation of them for generation yeah. after generation. And so, well, they were any... sure that they were the coming thing in evangelical Christianity, that they, that they, they, they would be the, the spinal column, so to speak, of uh, uh, the foundation and architecture of the new evangelical reality. Right. Um, and, and you know, if you go back, there's not, um, they weren't crazy uh, to think that. They had, over the, the early 20th century, built uh, the Bible Institute movement. Uh, many of the Bible Institutes that we take for granted today as, as Christian colleges and universities were built by dispensationalists. Uh, you mentioned the conferences. The Bible Conference Network was not exclusively, but, but very largely um, uh, founded by dispensationalists or people who believed in, in those teachings. Global missions uh, uh, agencies in the late 19th, early 20th century, where many of them were founded by dispensationalists. And then by the 1920s and 30s, when you get to the fundamentalist era and, and after, they're building seminaries. They're building Dallas Theological Seminary, which is, is 1925, Grace Theological Seminary, which has is not nearly as big as it used to be, but it was for a time sort of the big uh, one of the big dispensationalist seminaries, and that's in Winona Lake, Indiana. And then Talbot Seminary in 1950 was seen as sort of a third um, pillar of dispensationalist training. And so for yeah. that whole era, there are there are journals and and pub and um, eight uh, presses and publishers who are publishing dispensationalist theology in an attempt to sort of solidify a dispensationalist position on on almost every part of theology and that so for people you know even even some people today who uh maybe are a little older and were trained in the 60s or 70s there's still a sense that um that that dispensationalism you know was was one of the main players in the in the evangelical world i think the as as my title indicates i think that change has changed uh since then um but but that that assuredness that you you felt uh, when you were a kid, um, was in some cases well justified. Um, it, depending on where they came out of, there was a yeah, sense absolutely, that, absolutely. that they were the center. They had the yeah. institutions. They had a lot of credibility. Uh, they were very evangelistic, and I mean that first of all in terms of the gospel. Though they were also very evangelistic in terms of dispensationalism, in terms of you know yeah. convincing you of, of the system. Um, some some time back, um, I, I had a similar conversation with uh, a, a scholar of material history. Uh, having to do with this. And that's really fascinating because the interplay of dispensationalism and material history uh, comes down to it. Because I can, I can still remember when I found out that uh, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, or Biola, you know, started by two brothers, uh, very wealthy brothers there, uh, you know, on, on the West Coast. They started the school not only as kind of a Western bastion of, uh, of fundamentalist dispensationalism, but they also started it in a way that was kind of competitive with Moody. And I'll, I'll never forget seeing an ad that, the, uh, that Biola had placed in which they said, we are the true dispensationalist school because we do not have brick buildings. 
We believe in the rapture. Moody had just built, I think, Crowell Hall based upon the money from Quaker Oats, of all things. And, and you built this beautiful Gothic building with bricks. And they said, look, they've gone liberal. They got brick buildings. Uh, you know, that's uh, that, you look at that. That material culture tells you a lot about even the competitive nature of, of this. And, and so if you're a true dispensationalist institution, you didn't build much. You didn't invest much in buildings because Jesus is coming. Right. And, and uh, well, I, I didn't know that fact, that, that, that little story. That's great. Um, uh, right. But, but that's sort of the irony of, of some of this is that we're still living within, you know, a history largely shaped by, at least if you're in the evangelical world, largely shaped by uh, dispensationalism. I think another interesting aspect of the material history or the, even you could say the economic history of dispensationalism is how um, those brothers, uh, the Stuarts, yeah. um, were were uh, oil magnets. Um, they, they got most of their money from oil. And they set up Biola not just as a competitor to Moody within the dispensationalist uh, world, um, but as a competitor to John Rockefeller and the more mainline Protestant or liberal Protestant Very oil liberal. magnet. Yeah. who was, uh, you know, founded the University of Chicago and other things. And so right. it, you see in early texts around Biola that they see themselves as the sort of counter to the University of Chicago on the West Coast. That's right. And it's um, also interesting yeah. that at that point, the West Coast, in more general ways, was the bastion of conservatism over against the godless, increasingly liberal East. That's right. And I, I actually was born in Orange County. My family is from there. And and I it was a, it was news to me. Uh, I was actually a missionary kid, so I didn't live a ton in, in Southern California. But yeah. it was news to me growing up uh, to learn that California was actually quite progressive and liberal because the Orange County that I knew was um, one of the most Christian, conservative, uh, evangelical, sending missionaries all over the globe uh, type place. But um, yeah, for for the uh, for much of the 1940s through the 1970s, that was the dominant culture, at least in particularly in Southern California. Right. And remained that way actually for longer than a lot of like secular progressives would imagine, because as recently as uh, say, even say the turn of the, of the century, um, Y2K uh, and all the rest, uh, you still had enormous evangelical concentration and for that matter, you know, even political and cultural influence in a place like Orange County. That's right. And I, I believe I, your listeners will check me on this, but I believe they've had a Republican until recently in Congress. I think the, this person now is the first Democrat in 50 years or something yeah. to um, be to, to hold the Orange County uh, seat. So that's that's one one other little data point to, to reinforce that. Now, uh, just looking ahead, the equally interesting uh, parts of your book are the beginning, the middle and the end. Uh, and, and the end is what you, you say is the the. Basically, the decline, because you say the rise and fall of dispensationalism, I don't want to get to that yet. I just want to have that kind of hanging out there because it really is one of the most amazing theological and uh, and ecclesiological uh, truths of the age that classical dispensationalism is today rarely encountered. Uh, it, it's only in a few isolated pockets. Uh, there's some continuing refrains and themes from dispensationalism that can and I think will continue. But uh, I want to talk about this great engine of dispensationalism, especially in the early decades, in the middle decades of the 20th century, that produced this massive, uh, not only evangelical infrastructure, but specifically dispensational infrastructure. In a lot of ways, that was certainly where the energy was. 
That's right. Um, and I um, I mentioned the the growth of the seminaries and and other mm-hmm. things. Na- name was, them. Name them. So we know what yeah, you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. Dallas Seminary uh, in Dallas, Grace Theological Seminary in, in Winona Lakes, Indiana, uh, Talbot Seminary, which is part of Biola in in uh, now La Mirada, California. Um, these these turned out uh, hundreds and hundreds of pastors who were taught in the dispensational system. Now. It, 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 not all of them probably uh, took it uh, full, but uh, they were taught it. Um, but but this was one of the parts of the story that I really wanted to highlight was just the massive amount of, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, scholarship that you could find mid-century produced by dispensationalists, the hundreds of dissertations and master's theses and, and MDivs. Um, the the hundreds of monographs, the thousands of articles in different journals. And of course, it, it would be a slog to go through all that, but it all signifies a a project that was very conscious. It was undertaken by people um, like Lewis Berry Schaefer, who founded Dallas Seminary, and then particularly by his uh, disciples or the people he trained at Dallas, John Walverd, who ran Dallas Seminary for decades, Charles Ryrie, who was probably the um, key systematic theologian of dispensationalism, produced a very important book called Dispensationalism Today in 1965. And a very uh, important study Bible. That's right. A, a study Bible that rivaled, uh, uh, well, didn't rival Schofield's, but it was it was next to Schofield as a very popular uh, study Bible with those footnotes at the bottom that would give you sort of the dispensations take it on, was, on It was things. easier to understand than Schofield. Yes. Well, yeah, it was far less archaic. He was producing that in the 1970s versus Schofield, who died in 1921. There was that revision you mentioned in the 1960s. Um, but even there, they were trying to hold on to a lot of uh, the original Schofield. Right. Um, just to just go through a few more, uh, Dwight Pentecost, who was also at Dallas Seminary for decades, produced um, in the 1950s, probably the most important eschatology, systematic eschatology of dispensationalism. And then one that gets a little short shrift, but um, but is actually when it was one of my favorites to read through was Alva McLean, who was at Grace Theological Seminary. And he produced the first of a seven a planned seven volume systematic theology. Um, I, I believe it's called The Greatness of the Kingdom. And uh, and, and I, it was interesting because because he anticipates some of the developments that happen later on in the story with progressive dispensationalism in the 80s and 90s. But he's writing in the 1950s. And unfortunately, he he gets sick and dies in uh, the 1960s and never is able to finish it. But he was another one of these main figures that was sort of towering over the uh, at least the theological world of evangelicalism. And this whole era is just is something that's lost to historians, um, it, partly because of the um, the fall today. A, a historian, even in 1990 or 2000, going back, it, you have to sort of know what you're looking for to find this. And then there's also been just a strong bias against um, treating dispensationalism as an actual intellectual uh, movement, or or there's an intellectual history to this. It's often been treated as a cultural movement that really doesn't have any brain to it. And I wanted to recover that, that brain part or that theological part to get a sense of the scope of what was going on. Yeah. And I think you do that. And with respect, but there really is a storyline here, and and I still want to keep us on the ascent uh, the, yeah. in in the in the storyline, and I guess a part of this is just because you know at my age, um, the uh, the fall of dispensationalism is one of the most shocking developments because even when I entered the Christian ministry and when I went to seminary, uh, such a such a thing was not evident uh, certainly uh, to my eyes. You had a, a a kind of a three part breakdown in American evangelicalism, where you had the the very self consciously reformed, uh, and and then you had kind of the uh, the 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 residue of uh, the conservatives that came out of the liberal denominations 
especially in the, the say the Baptist denominations, the free church denominations. And then you had the dispensationalists. And so that, that's kind of the tripartite, you know, evangelical typology we had. But the one that appeared to have the most energy was actually the dispensationalism. Yeah. And, uh, and yet, you, as you document in your story, the, the, they had to kind of work into the mainstream. So, for instance, when Dallas Seminary is established, I think, again, 1921. Uh, some, 25. 25, excuse me. Um, I mean, the, only much later do they enter something like the Association of Theological Schools in the United States and America, the accrediting agency. So, in other words, they, they really saw themselves as kind of a part. What, what made the dispensationalists decide they wanted to kind of become the mainstream? How, how, how did that happen? Yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting part of the story. So uh, one big part of it is is actually understanding that the fundamentalist movement in the twenties and thirties was um, was divided over eschatology and and these sort of systematic theologies. The the term dispensationalism gets coined in the nineteen twenties to try to sort of isolate and identify um, who these people are that have these distinctive. Right teachings. And so from then on, um, it, it's sort of a race to legitimacy in some ways. And so th it's very tense. This is how I tell the story in the 1920s and 30s between the the fundamentalists themselves, like the factions within the fundamentalist movement. There's a lot of blaming going on about what went wrong in the 1920s. There's also a lot of institution building as as the fundamentalists are needing to create uh, parallel institutions to the ones that they exited in right. the 20s and 30s. And so the project to become sort of mainstream or respected, um, in some ways it was there from the beginning in the sense that before this period, uh, people who held to the rapture and other teachings, though they weren't called dispensationalists, were very well accepted among conservative Protestants. There, there wasn't the same sort of bitterness around uh, the, these particular teachings. When you get to the fundamentals period, these teachings become very significant um, to the who's going to sort of lead the movement going out. So there's an attempt to be legitimized through sort of defending your position. Um, and there's also a, a, an effort by uh, Schaefer, who founds Dallas Seminary, and others to find a different path to being a fundamentalist. Uh, Schaefer disassociates from some of the more bombastic uh, fundamentalists like William Bell Riley and others because he thinks they've sort of taken the movement in the wrong direction. They've taken it in a direction that's really about politics and culture and that Schaefer is pretty bookish by uh, by temperament and really wants to develop his theology and train pastors and, and in a way tap into that older Darby notion of the, the church's role is otherworldly. We, we're called to be missionaries and we're called to disciple Christians and to do that, we need to develop uh, sort of um, a legitimate, uh, vibrant uh, theological training system. And so that, that really becomes the effort um, in, the, in the, uh, the 20s and 30s. And then by the 40s, you, you get that, that sort of three-part um, division that you talked about. And you have sort of the introduction of like the new, the new evangelicals on the scene who are, right. um, you know, Carl Henry and others are trying to split the difference between the covenantalists and the dispensationalists and figure out how can we sort of come together um, on these... Uh, it's sort of a unified uh, conservative Protestant movement. Yeah, but it's so interesting that. to me how dispensationalism fits into yeah. that story. Yeah, well, you can see the strain. So the uh, fundamentalist modernist controversy, you know, the, let's just say the hottest moment in the, in the 1920s, that's when a lot of this is happening simultaneously. And even on the reform side, uh, you have Gresham Machen, whose book Christianity and Liberalism is, is, you know, was published 100 years ago this year. Um, in that book, he has to say, you know, uh, we need a united conservative front because in, in Christianity and liberalism, he makes the, the, the very, I think, accurate assessment that theological liberalism is not another form of Christianity. 
it is a heresy. It's a new religion. That's why you know, Christianity and liberalism, two different religions. And uh, so he's got to deal with the dispensationalists in that fundamentalist movement and, and, and rather awkwardly, because he basically says, I do not want this to uh, imply that I'm in agreement at all with the biblical validity of dispensationalism, but they do not deny the virgin birth. They do not deny the Trinity. They do not deny you know, the, the inerrancy of Scripture. And then, you know, I think a, another footnote to this that people miss is that Machen's movement actually split with the Carl McIntyre group. Going off, we're actually far more uh, friendly to dispensationalism, right? It's a, it's, it's a fascinating time. People can shift gears all over the place. That's right. And um, uh, the the premillennial, so yeah, Machen is a Presbyterian. There's a bunch of Presbyterians that leave. Some of them are premillennialists, some not. The premillennialists, at least the ones who really want that to be a core part of their theology, uh, break off with Carl McIntyre and a few others um, and, and create their own uh, subculture. Machen, you know, founds Westminster Theological Seminary, which in the 30s and 40s and 50s becomes the sort of oppositional seminary to dispensationalism. And you see these interesting sort of trading of letters uh, between Dallas and Westminster over, you know, is dispensationalism a modern heresy? Right. Um, is it is it valid? Is covenantalism uh, sort of uh, giving up too much to liberalism? These are the debates that are happening. And, you know, the, the substance of these debates can uh, can be interesting. They can also get tiring because they're sort of circling around the same debates over and over again. But there's a lot at stake within the fundamentalist world because these have become some of the signifiers of what it means to be a Bible-believing Christian is sort of where you land on some of these issues. Right. And, you know, and, and yeah, that becomes yeah. the stakes. A little subset in that debate, which is because primitivism is such a big part of the argument back then. Mm. And yeah. again, the historian in me wants to say that that uh, you can have the argument one way or the other. You can't have it both ways. You can't say the church has always believed this, and we just rediscovered this in the 19th century. Uh, and, and so you got to take one of those arguments or the other, which is one of the points that Machen and his colleagues made um, uh, to the fundamentalists. And, and the, the dispensationalists. Another interesting thing, uh, Dr. Hummel, uh, C. Allen Russell wrote a book, I don't know, a generation ago on portraits of American fundamentalism. Right. And, and with the exception of Machen, they were all dispensational. Yeah. There were, I think, seven of them. Five of them were graduates of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And, and, and there was no dispensationalism taught uh, in, in their theological education. Um, so that raises a huge question. You know, how did how did these urban pastors? You mentioned William Bell Riley, uh, J.C. Massey, and so many others. How did these urban pastors get this? And I want to suggest you a thesis and see if you agree or disagree. It seems to me that during the same time, like I said, we got Spurgeon in London, you know, a century earlier. Now, fast forward several decades, and, and what you have in the United States is you have all these cities. And by the way, dispensationalism uniquely sociologically developed more in the American North than in the American yeah. South. It was not a yeah. Sunbelt phenomenon originally. It was an yeah. urban Northern uh, phenomenon. And these urban Northern pastors, uh, they really saw it as, I'm just going to argue this, a way to teach the Bible to people and to offer an alternative to liberalism. Hmm. Yeah, that, that sounds uh, pretty accurate to me. And just to reiterate your point, the 
um, I have a map of, of where Darby visited. And I, I mentioned Darby isn't the whole story, but he spent a lot of time in places actually like New York and Boston, believe it or not, places you'd never associate with dispensationalism today, but also in places like Chicago. And um, that, that really bore fruit a generation later with people like Dwight Moody, um, who, who, you know, Moody wasn't a theologian, but he definitely adopted the any moment rapture and some other teachings in his in his revivalist uh, preaching. So um, the movement is very north. In fact, I call it the Great Lakes Basin. So you're really talking about what would be now the Midwest and parts of the East Coast. Um, and 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 what's interesting is people like uh, William Bell Riley um, are uh, are these people who have interesting regional uh, influences. And so, as you mentioned, Riley was at uh, Southern Seminary. Uh, he he was not a dispensationalist at that time. Uh, he developed those ideas later when he became in contact with the Moody movement in the North when he was in Minneapolis. And um, this, the same story more or less goes with Amzi Dixon, who became the successor to Moody at his church in Chicago, uh, another Southerner, I believe he was from North Carolina, uh, who's a Southern Baptist. Um, and this is one of those interesting, this is something I trace throughout the story is sort of the sectional um, development of dispensationalism that starts in the Midwest or the Great Lakes area that then moves south and west uh, along different lines, depending on who we're talking about, and then becomes a big part of, of sort of Sunbelt religion as well in the in the mid 20th and late 20th century. Yeah. Okay. So we really need two more parts to our uh story here kind of laid out. One of them is what now appears in retrospect to have been kind of a false uh, uh, mountaintop experience uh, for, uh, you might say, the success of dispensationalism in the United States was something like Tim LaHaye and the Left Behind series. So if you were just looking at book sales, popular evangelicalism, even 20 years ago, dispensationalism would have looked like the coming thing, not the going thing. So what happened there? Yeah, and that goes back to the 1970s and Hal Lindsey's book, The Lake Great Planet Earth, which was the best-selling nonfiction book in the United States of that decade. Period. Sold over 10 million copies. Yeah. Uh, The Bible was the only thing that sold more in, in the U.S., uh, and so uh, uh, th- there's a sign there in the 19, 19- and that's in 1970. There's a sign that there's just massive appeal for a popularized, really trendy, that's what Great Lake Air Planet Earth was, trendy version of the end time scenario in particular. It seemed to make sense of the Middle East that was, you know, had multiple wars in the late 60s, early 70s. It seemed to make sense of the massive upheavals in American society. Cold uh, War. The Cold War, it was looking to Europe and these machinations about the European Union that seemed to be in a dispensationalist reading, precursors to some type of one world government. Um, And so from the 70s on, there's just this massive uh, commercial consumer interest in dispensationalism. And, uh, you know, LaHaye and Jenkins, Jerry Jenkins, who write the Left Behind series in the 90s, um, get a lot of credit uh, for really, you know, uh, selling 60, 80 million books, um, but they were really doing nothing new. They just, I think, happened to, to be the one that that really went, uh, went, went crazy. There were novels in the 70s and 80s that were trying to do essentially the same thing. Um, and, and from the outside, this looks like an amazing success story that, that this really dense theology has been sort of uh, popularized for the masses. The, it's very evangelistic in tone. So the end of most of these books have a call to trust in Jesus. And so there's a sense that this is part of the mission of the church is, is this is like a vessel to get out the gospel. And th- there's there's many stories where that's true. The Jesus people, many of them pick up sort of this uh, dispensationalism as their default theology. But under the hood or, or, or under the surface of the pop culture, um, there's massive problems in the seminary world. 
Uh, and there's massive problems on sort of the intellectual front for the coherence of dispensationalism. And I go through a number of things, particularly in the 80s and early 90s, that are these sort of successive blows to the credibility of dispensationalism uh, as a theological system. To where well, and a part around, of it is yeah. just to just to to put it on the line here. Part of it yeah. was that much of that public uh, that, that uh, publishing sensation was about what amounts to date setting, and the dates didn't yeah. hold. That's and, true. And, that's and true that, that yeah. raised into yeah. in, in to, to question the entire system. Right. People like Chuck Smith, uh, the, the Calvary Chapel uh, founder, speculated about 1983, among other dates. Um, the, the, the good ones, the, the, the more studious ones, would insist that the any moment rapture, no one knew exactly when it would happen. There's, of course, the, the famous sort of egg on face, 88 reasons why the rapture will happen in 1988. And then the 89 reasons why it'll happen in 1989, he, he wanted to, that was Edgar Wisenant. Um, but some, someone yeah. like Edgar Wisenant um, really didn't have any relation to the scholastic or scholarly apparatus. He was sort of a, he was an engineer again, sure. but someone sure. who was basically, yeah. you, you'd think of him today as sort of like a, a, a message board lurker or someone who would sort of hang around the internet and like have his own theories of things. He just happened to make it big. Um, but uh, but yeah, that that popular the popularity was was largely based yeah. on these sort of dramatic sensationalist accounts of what was going to happen in the near future. And uh, to give them credit, they did a major pivot when the end of the Cold War happened in the '90s. And um, and of course, that was a big part of all of their predictions in the '80s. The people who made the predictions that the Soviet Union would be a key player. And once the Soviet Union is gone, there's a pretty strong and quick shift to looking at other potential uh, agents of of the end times. And and in fact, Islamic you know, terrorism. Um, yeah, Islamic terrorism comes out in the you know we have the first Gulf War in 1991. Uh, one of the sad for me, as, as someone who doesn't really like this popularization, one of the sad things is seeing someone like uh, John Walvert, who's this sort of uh, stately theologian running Dial Seminary, he got in on the pop uh, the pop dispensationalism game with his um, Armageddon oil in the Middle East. And he, he published that in 1974, right after the Arab-Israeli war in, 19, in 1973. And then he, he republished it in 1991 to sort of ride on the first Gulf War uh, trend as well. But this is how um, this is how you accumulate those sales is you have very timely um, readings of the Bible that, that claim to, to be able to decode the near future. Uh, uh, speaking of uh, kind of the date setting and all the rest, I, I was an earnest, you know, Christian teenager, and the Lord brought so many wonderful Christian uh, adults into my life, uh, and but they sometimes did perplex me. And uh, the the most influential dispensationalist in my life, uh, who who dearly loved Christ, loved the Scripture, and loved me, confused me. You know, I'm like 16, 17 years old, and and he would say things with equal earnestness, like these two things within two minutes. He would say, no one knows the date or the hour. And then he would say, but we are responsible to know the times and the seasons. <laughs> okay, well, how, 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 how was that supposed to be? And, and so, you know, it was, it was kind of, I, I felt that it was a contradiction built into, you know, the system. And uh, so you, you have this confidence, but then you immediately take it back. Uh, but when you take it back, you immediately try to reassert it. And uh, yeah, so I, you know, it's like, I'm a premillennialist. I believe in an imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, but uh, I, I, I really don't know the times and the seasons other than in, as I would say, as someone with more reformed theological bent, what is simply set out in the narrative flow of, of, of biblical theology. Um, this does come to a, a rather surprising, indeed shocking conclusion in your story. Uh, because 
I'm hard pressed right now to point to a bastion of classical dispensationalism as a school. I'm very hard pressed to point to a major center of concerted dispensational classical influence. Am I missing something? Uh, not no, you're not. Um, there are definitely places that still uh, teach a, a mm-hmm. classical dispensationalism or sort of a progressive dispensationalism, which is a modification of. The but those are two that, different things. Very yes, they different. Are. They're very different. They're very different. Um, the, the, in terms of the classical, um, no, there there aren't many uh, left. There is a book that just came out um, this uh, last week called "Discovering Dispensationalism," which cobbles together about a dozen scholars who hold to uh, largely a classical, though there are some progressives in that mix. Um, and, and, you know, the, the places that really teach this are places like Southern California seminary, very small seminary, um, uh, shepherd's college, very small, uh, very small college. They're pretty vibrant in their own way, but they're very small and you could probably put all of them in a room and it wouldn't equal, you know, a, a one large seminary. Um, but, uh, but otherwise the, the, the classical tradition of dispensationalism is, is on really tough ground. Um, I would guess uh, that that if you went to some seminaries and you found them, uh, they would be in their 60s or 70s at this point. There's not there's not people in their 30s and 40s who are sort of being trained in this system. I will just say that at this point in my life, that's not old. I I, I did not mean it that way at all. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to put <laughs> you know, it. So one of the ways uh, one of the ways I actually think about this is a healthy theological system yeah. um, is one that is really invested in the self perpetuation yeah. of its teachings. And that's uh, that's that's more what I want to point to is is that that that's not happening at nearly the rate you would need it to. Um, yeah. There are plenty of independent Baptists and independent churches, um, particularly more rural. I've heard from some of them; uh, they're out there. So one thing I, I really wanted to clarify is fall does not mean disappearance. It wasn't the rise and then disappearance of dispensationalists, um, but it is this fall story of, of sort of their prominence and really trying to recapture this moment you know, a few decades ago when uh, you could have flipped the coin and and one side could have been dispensationalist, one side could have been covenantalist. And I think you would have been sort of justified in believing either of those would be sort of the the dominant view for the next few few decades. It turns out totally differently. And that's sort of the stunning, uh, the stunning collapse is, is how rapidly um, dispensationalism sort of left the the intellectual, uh, the intellectual world. Yeah, and I know many classical dispensations. I want to say, and and, and as close friends, uh, and, and you know, I also am president of a theological institution which was that long predates dispensationalism. You know, our our date was eighteen fifty nine, uh, and and grounded in a far more continuous tradition, even going back you know centuries beyond that. Uh, but you know, the, the the most famous graduate of this institution, I think, in the twentieth century was W.A. Criswell of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, who became a very dear friend and was an ardent classical dispensationalist. Uh, yeah. And so I, I, I was meeting with him. I have to tell you this. I think you'll enjoy this. I, uh, I was, uh, as president-elect of this school, uh, I decided it would be a good, because uh, I had a period of weeks. That's an awkward period, as a matter of fact, <laughs> before you take office. I thought one of the things that would be a good use of my time is I'll, I'll fly to Dallas, and I will meet with three people. Uh, the, uh, the, the then quite elderly uh, former president at Southwestern Seminary, and uh, I'll, I'll meet with uh, W.A. Criswell, who was already a dear friend, uh, and uh, I'll meet with uh, Donald Campbell, who's the president of Dallas Seminary. Well, I had an appointment to go see Donald Campbell, and I got there a little early. There was a chapel, so I walked in the chapel. W.A. Criswell was preaching. And uh, so W.A. Criswell is talking about 
theological education and how much he's in agreement with Dallas. Uh, and then he sees me in the congregation and it shocks him. And he realizes, and this is his alma mater. And he looks at me and says, but there, right there is the young man who is our hope. And uh, just wonderful moment in a sense. But I, I just, I didn't, I didn't know if he meant a hope for a theological recovery or hope for dispensationalism. But it was, it was just one of those glorious moments when I thought, you know, this is, this is, and you know, Dallas back then, and, and maybe still today in chapel, they put all their faculty up on the platform. It was very impressive, you know, for a chapel service. And again, I, I was among friends there. I was very well known as holding to reform theology, but I was very much among friends there. And uh, I, I will say that uh, received a good deal of encouragement enormous encouragement from both W. Criswell and uh, actually uh, the leadership at Dallas at the time. But well, Dallas is not the same institution. Yeah. Right. Well, that's an interesting part of this whole story is that dispensationalism is not so distinct uh, of, a, yep. of a theological system that it would create sort of uh, a breaking a fellowship with other conservative right, right. Protestants. It's sort of in that perfect sweet spot where it is distinctive enough that it causes some problems uh, with, with other uh, conservative Protestants, but not distinctive enough that you would, uh, the, the rest of the Protestant world would kick them out or, or something like that. And I think yeah. that's actually a key part of the story of its success of, of things like the Schofield Reference Bible, which was published in 1909, became the most popular reference Bible in American uh, history. Uh, it has all these dispensationalist footnotes. I'd say 90% of them are not controversial to most conservative evangelicals or, or Protestants. Right. Um, they, they just sort of... A lot are archaeological or sort of historical right. references. Yeah. Right, right. Or or expounding, yeah. you know, pretty traditional teachings of the deity of Christ or the Trinity or or all these other teachings. It's when you get to some of the the, the sort of key passages that that develop the system that things get uh, things get dicey um, with other with other Christians. So it's sort of if it had been a little more mainstream or a little less uh, controversial, you could imagine it actually being much more successful. If it was a little more distinct, you could imagine it being sort of kicked out of uh, the, the rest of the fundamentalist movement. But it sort of has that sweet spot. And as to Dallas today, um, Dallas Seminary certainly still has a dispensationalist flavor to it. It's it's not like they're trying to forsake their their history or something like that. Um, but uh, but it is not the same place that it was at the height of Walward Ryrie and Pentecost and and these other teachers. And um, it is the site of of what I mentioned, progressive dispensationalism, which is a development by certain, uh, particularly at Dallas Seminary, younger faculty, uh, people like Daryl Bach and Craig Blazing, who basically, I mean, this is my reading. I'm I'm a historian from the outside. Basically, give a lot of territory to the covenantalist arguments, and and the way that looks in practice is is a lot of the distinctions and special categories that really define classical dispensationalism are rubbed away or, or, or softened by progressive dispensationalists. And so, um, you know, people have talked about in the last few decades, a sort of uh, general evangelical consensus on some type of amillennial, premillennial, historic premillennial um, uh, little uh, sort of bubble uh, where a lot of people land. Um, and what's left out of that is is classical dispensationalism uh, that, that's seen as a little too distinctive with this, this sort of baggage of this popularization that in one way was very successful, but also like sort of um, really hurt its reputation in the halls of seminaries. I was very interested that you put in an anecdote going back to a meeting of far more liberal Baptists mm -hmm. uh, in which Tony Campolo uh, yeah. uh, took a, a stab at the institution I lead uh, simply by dismissing it as, uh, as dispensationalist. And uh, I appreciated uh, your, your note about that. Yeah, well, once you um, get really invested in this story, you... Um 
you really know when to what you're you try to at least understand who you're looking at and and who's dispensationalist and who's not and yeah. um this is part of the legacy of dispensationalism particularly its popular legacy is it's become sort of the the way that critics of evangelicalism more broadly they tend to assume that everyone's a dispensationalist or or i don't know if they actually believe it or if it's or just that every conservative is a dispensationalist Right. That was, that's that, right. Was, that was Tony Campolo's problem. He was accusing us of being dispensationalists when what he meant was conservative. Right. That's right. And in some ways, that can be a badge of honor for dispensationalists. They get to stand in for uh, for the conservatives. Um, they also, you know, the dispensationalist reading of the end times is is for many Americans sort of the default Christian reading. If you ask sort of the non-Christian, they probably assume that most Christians believe in the rapture. Most Christians are looking for an antichrist, things like that. You know, the mark of the beast um, being sort of this thing that's going to control all of our lives. All that kind of stuff is sort of comes out of a popularized dispensationalism. But one of the things I wanted to do throughout the book, and particularly telling the story uh, where I did of the South and the, the Southern adoption, was to be very careful about uh, who is who is saying what. And I think actually the the sort of meat of the story is an understanding how uh, this 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 theology didn't take over everybody. It didn't sort of sweep and everyone was not, you know, unthinkingly becoming dispensationalist. It was actually something that was debated a lot. And that dispensation itself met with halting success in many in many areas. I deeply appreciated your book. And uh, I, I also want to point out that um, the conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention was really only made possible by large church pastors, almost all of whom were dispensationalists. And much of their credibility right. uh, for conviction, much of the platform that they had built, and that includes Dr. Criswell, was yeah. based upon an unapologetic uh, classical dispensationalism. So I want to say uh, that I have a great deal of respect uh, for so many of those preachers, so many of those pastors, uh, so many of those Bible teachers who so fervently believed in the Scripture and and who defended the truth of Scripture so comprehensively. Uh, so there's a sense in which looking at at this particular book, and, and I, I want to thank you again for writing it. You fill in many of the gaps. You connect a lot of dots that I don't think anyone has ever done before. But you also raise some huge questions about the perpetuation of truth and teaching and institutions, and uh, that gives us a lot to think about. Well, thank you. That's uh, That was one of the goals. I, As I mentioned earlier on, I came out of this world. I, I Just to say it again, I'm a, I would call myself a historic premillennialist at this point in my, uh, in my uh, journey, but, um, but I have a lot of appreciation for um, for the dispensationalist world. It gave me a love of the Bible. It gave me a sense of the seriousness with which to take the Bible. It gave me a sense of the authority of the Bible. Um, and there were just a number of absolutely lovely people, including my parents, who who are dispensationalists. Yeah. And there, there's nothing... Um, there's nothing I have against them. But there is a bigger question, as you mentioned, about the way that uh, theology and culture intersect in American Christianity, and then the way that different um, traditions, different claims, different systems uh, get perpetuated. And that, to me, is is all the interest that is often glossed over. I'll, I'll finish maybe on a historiographical point, that there's a lot of it, there's a lot that's been written about fundamentalism and evangelicalism and apocalypticism and and other movements in American Christianity, none of them tend to center theology uh, and, and particularly theological categories that having some, you know, I'm someone who's grown up in the church, uh, really understand that those animate a lot of people. 
to, to for why they do what they do and and to actually center that in this case dispensationalism just puts a different light on a lot of the familiar territory that others have covered very well and i, I try to give as much credit as i can to to others but i really saw a gap in centering something like dispensationalism and saying what can we understand about the development of american christianity through the lens of theology as opposed to through the lens of culture uh, or, or class or something else. Dr. Daniel Hummel, thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. It's been a pleasure. Many thanks to my guest, Daniel Hummel, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you will find more than 180 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information about the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. And until next time, keep thinking. <laughs>